glad you guys are here. My name is uh, my name's David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts 6. So this may be, if you're a guest, I'm sorry. And if you're a regular, I'm sorry also. This may be the, the longest section we've ever tried to do in one day. I'm going to say it is. And for some reason, I have to read every word. I feel, I don't know why. I don't have, I just feel bound to read every word. Like I'm skipping something that God inspired. So lots of reading today. But I want you all to stay with me. If you need to take a nap, I won't be offended at all. Last week, we looked at the first half of Acts 6. And we said the importance for us, knowing our assignment, that was a word, or calling, or the race that God has marked out for you, whatever phraseology you want to use, how important that is to know, because it's going to be challenged, and we want to remain faithful even in the midst of challenges. Sometimes those challenges are negative, they're from the enemy, often, as in Acts 6, the challenges are from things that are good and right and necessary, but they're outside your lane. It's not the area that you need to take care of. And so we talked about that last week. We were also introduced to a guy named Stephen, who was one of seven Greek-speaking men, who was nominated by the church as a whole, and then confirmed by the 12 apostles to take care of some Greek-speaking widows. So we have some Greek-speaking widows who are not getting food on a daily basis. I said I don't think it was a racial deal. I think it was logistics. You had apostles, 12 apostles, who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. They didn't speak Greek. You've got this thousands and thousands of people. None of these guys had operational, organizational, logistical training. I think it, it was just beyond them. And so you had this critical need that's not being met. If these women, these widows are not getting food, then they are dying. They're starving to death. That's their source. And so the people bring this need before the apostles. They say, what do you want to do about it? They nominate these seven guys, and they say, we want these guys to run it. We want them to run this food distribution program, ministry, outreach. The apostles say, okay, and Stephen is one of those seven. And what we're going to see today is how strategic Stephen is in the overall scope and plan of what God is trying to do in the world not just within that one church. So starting in verse 8 of chapter 6, Stephen's about to get arrested. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Those were people who were former slaves or children of former slaves. uh, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But none of these guys could stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave Stephen as Stephen spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Remember, that's the group of 70 religious leaders. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We've seen this before. Peter and John have been arrested at least once. All 12 of the apostles have been arrested at least once, most likely more. But at least those two occasions we've already seen as we've looked through Acts. This is different. This is the first time anyone outside of the 12 apostles has ever been arrested that we have recorded in Acts. First time it was someone other than the apostles. And 
and this is where we're going to spend some time now. We'll circle back to that idea of someone other than the apostles. This is the first time we've seen the people in general turned against the gospel, turned against the apostles, turned against Christianity, whatever label you want to put on this movement that we've been reading about over the past several weeks. This is the first time that we've seen any of the kind of the regular people, the normal people, turned against them. The religious leaders have been unhappy for a long time, but as we've read through Acts, we've seen that they've actually been intimidated by the crowds. We we read in Acts 5, even people who were unwilling to connect and join in with this community held the community in high regard. Later on in Acts 5, we saw that the religious leaders want to take the apostles and arrest them, but it says they're afraid they're going to get stoned if they do, because the people hold this movement and their leadership in such high regard. So something significant has happened that this synagogue of freedmen, the leaders of that synagogue, are able not just to turn the religious leaders against Stephen. We knew that would happen. But they've begun for the first time to turn the people against Stephen. And that's a theme that we'll see through the rest of the book of Acts as we move through. So what's different? What's different other than the fact that Stephen isn't one of the twelve? He performs signs. He performs wonders. Just like the apostles. I think the difference is his message. Stephen's Greek. I don't think he's from the Holy Land. He's a Jew. He was devout. He probably came to Jerusalem three times a year. For the three major festivals, that's what is, that would have been what was required of him. I don't think he had this deep connection to the temple that maybe Peter and James and John, these uh, Holy Land Jews, would have had. These guys who were born in Palestine and raised there. I don't think he had this, this connection necessarily. He's a little bit on the fringe, so to speak. He, absolutely a member. He was on the team, a member of the group. But I think in terms of his upbringing, he was a bit on the fringe. And I think that allowed him to see some implications of Jesus' life and death and resurrection that the twelve couldn't see. Where if they saw them up to this point, they hadn't said anything about them. So at, at a minimum, I think Stephen is he's, he's singing a new note that nobody sung up to this point. What he's saying is the temple's not really that important anymore. Everything that goes on here, it, it's, it's irrelevant in some ways. And you can see that by the charges that they lay against him. Now, some of it is absolutely dirty. They've got false witnesses. It says they secretly persuade people. So that's, that's underhanded. I think they're twisting and distorting what Stephen says. I don't think they're making it up out of thin air. I think they're take, just like they did with Jesus. They're taking things that Stephen said, and they're twisting, they're distorting, but they're not making up out of whole cloth. And I think that that's the heart of what Stephen is saying. You can see it there in all the different ways it's phrased. The temple is not that important any longer. And I think that is what is upsetting to these folks. And, and the sacrificial system, as we mean, this, this thing Moses set up, this thing God gave us through Moses, we don't need to do that anymore. I think Stephen can see that as someone who maybe, again, is one step removed from the primacy of the temple. He can say, you know, the sacrificial system, that makes, why would we keep doing that? If Jesus is a sacrifice for our sins, that's what y'all said, then why are we still doing that? Apostles, you told us that when Jesus died, the veil was torn in two. That means something. If the veil between the holy place and the most holy place was torn in two at Jesus' death, well, that means something. I think Stephen can see that. It means access. We now have access to the Father. We don't have to go through this priestly system. We don't have to meet in this building. And it makes everybody upset because this is a bit crass, but the temple is not just the the religious center of Jerusalem. It's also the economic center. You can almost see it as Jerusalem had a bit of a tourist economy. 
At least three times a year, you had needed animals to sacrifice and needed to change their money and needed places to stay and needed food to eat. It's a big deal. And now Stephen is saying, you know what, this whole, it's not that important. He's in their pocketbook and they're upset. And I think that's why the crowds turn against him. This isn't just a difference in, oh, whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. That's what we've been arguing about up to this point. Now you're getting into our checkbook. We're not happy about that. So they get very frustrated with him. They get angry with him, and they arrest him. Now, chapter 7 is his defense. There's two things I want you looking at. We don't want to get lost in the weeds. He covers all of Genesis, well, from Genesis 12, all of Exodus, and then a little bit of the prophets in 52 verses. So if you've never read the Old Testament, now you don't have to. You can just read this one chapter, and you can get everything that you need. I want you listening for two things. Two things. One, God can't be confined to a physical space. Two, Israel, God's people, have consistently rejected the individuals he sent to them to rescue them, to lead them, to guide them, and God's used those individuals anyway. Those are the two things you'll hear back and forth. God can't be confined to a physical space, even this temple, and y'all, Israel, have consistently rejected God's messengers, and God has used those rejected messengers Anyway, verse 1, the high priest, the leader of the Sanhedrin, asked Stephen, are these charges true? Those charges that we just looked at. To this, Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. He starts out very respectfully. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. God gave Abraham no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised Abraham that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no children. God spoke to Abraham in this way, For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that's Egypt, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me here in this place. Then God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So at the beginning, Stephen is saying, we're all on common ground here. I'm starting in Genesis 12. Abraham. Father of our faith. He didn't have any dirt in this land. It's not just that he didn't have a temple. He didn't have anything here. He didn't even have a, a, a piece of ground to put his foot on. Enough ground to, to, to call his own. He was in right relationship with God. We know that. God gave him this sign of relationship. Circumcision. And so from the beginning, we see God, God even called Abraham from Mesopotamia. He was in a foreign country. And he interacted with God. So from the beginning, we see this temple is not essential to relating to God. The father of our faith didn't, again, he didn't just not have a temple. He didn't have a square foot of dirt in this holy land. Then he picks up with Joseph. Because the patriarchs, remember there are 12 tribes of Israel. The patriarchs are the leader of each one of those tribes. Judah, Manasseh, you remember those names? All those guys. Naphtali. Lots of names that are no longer in circulation, but those of you who are pregnant may want to partake. Issachar, that's a good one. 
because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, so his brothers, because his brothers were jealous of him, they sold Joseph as a slave into Egypt. But God was with Joseph and rescued Joseph from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled Joseph to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made Joseph ruler over Egypt and all his palace. This is, the, this is Genesis 36 through 50. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 people in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So here's our second theme. With Abraham, we see the temple is not essential. You can relate to God outside of this building. Here we see, and our ancestors historically have rejected God's help. Joseph was the one who God had deemed. It's going to be through you, through you, that I'm going to save all these other guys, all your brothers and your parents. Joseph didn't handle it well, for sure. He has the dream. You never tell your brothers that they're bowing down to you. That doesn't work out well, especially if you're the youngest. He didn't handle it well, but it didn't negate the fact that it was true. His brothers got jealous. We've already seen in Acts. That's a common emotion from the religious leaders. Jealous of what God is doing through the apostles. They reject the patriarchs, the ancestors of these 70 men. Y'all's ancestors rejected the one God sent. Subtext. You've rejected this new one, Jesus, whom God has sent. It's in our blood. It's what we do. We reject God's messengers and God uses them anyway very interesting first time the brothers show up in Egypt they don't recognize Joseph and he says they do recognize him the second time you wonder there if Stephen is that a is that an invitation you missed him the first time when Jesus came the first time you missed him here's your chance here's the second time Jesus is appealing to you through me Jesus is appealing to you through this work being done by these 12 apostles in this community of thousands and thousands of people at this point. It's an opportunity for them. They don't respond well. Now, here's the meat. This is Moses. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, so remember that was the promise to say, for 400 years they're going to be in Egypt, and then I'm going to come get them. So as the time drew near for God to fulfill that promise of rescuing his people from slavery, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. As I get into Moses, think about parallels with Jesus, particularly the idea of being rejected. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He'd been raised in Pharaoh's house. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to the, to the defense of this Israelite and avenged this Israelite by killing the Egyptian. Listen to this verse. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. 
Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler over us? Are you, going to, are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 more years had passed, so now Moses is 80, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When Moses saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led him out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. This is the Moses, excuse me, who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. He was gone for 40 days. That's it. He was up on a mountain. They knew where he was. This was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? No, you didn't. You've taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the stars of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So there's this picture. Stephen is saying, Moses, our great deliverer, the one we look back to. We celebrate the Passover every year, this act of God, through Moses, delivering us from slavery. Go back and read Exodus, the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, miracle after miracle after miracle to get us out of that. We're in the wilderness. Moses goes up on a mountain for 40 days to get the Ten Commandments. That's it. And our ancestors, in that short amount of time, bail. They go to his brother Aaron and say, we don't know what happened to Moses. Why don't you make us a God? And they all give him their earrings and their jewelry. Line, it's comic in Exodus when Moses calls Aaron to accountability and says, What happened? Aaron's like, They gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire and a cow jumped out. That's what he says. Has that ever happened to you? Throw things in a fire and an idol pops out? That's what Aaron said. It just happened. I don't know. And then we decided to worship it. That's what they're doing. Forty days. That's it. Sign after sign after sign after wonder after wonder after wonder after confirmed promise, promise, promise. Forty days. They can't hang in there and be faithful. And Stephen is going, that's our heritage. God sent us Moses. That little microcosm at the beginning. We missed him at the beginning. This, this just Israelite. Moses came to help him. And he turns on him. Forty years later, Moses comes back, and our people, our nation, does the same 
thing. It's what we do. Now Stephen goes from agreed upon history. Now he's about to get in their kitchen. Things get tight and tense. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It has been made as God. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Remember the tabernacle. That's in Exodus, where God says to Moses some of those boring chapters where it's like take this many pomegranates and this many hides of sea cows and sew them together like this. And it, it's he's it's a tent. It's a portable structure. And remember God's presence in Genesis, or excuse me, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's this it's this cloud. Pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. And the tabernacle follows the presence of God. Very different from building a permanent structure and saying this is where God lives permanently. To say God is on the move and he's given us this tent. And so we can follow him around wherever he goes. Very different approach to God. Stephen is going back to that tabernacle idea and saying remember That was it. God was with us in that tabernacle before any of this stuff was ever built. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua, it's interesting that even word receiving the tabernacle, they built it. And Joshua is saying it was given to us by the Lord. Our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. And when they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, his son, who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Easy for us to read. Devastating for 70 men who've invested their entire life in a house made by human hands. To have this nobody, this guy who waits tables, stand in front of them and say, all this, God doesn't live here. But it was Solomon, excuse me, as the prophet says, this is God speaking, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where, where will my resting place be? Has, has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. That's, he's kind of thrown down the gauntlet with them. This whole thing that you're invested in, this whole thing that you're protecting. I'm using your book, the Old Testament. I'm showing you why it doesn't matter a lick. It doesn't matter at all. Before any of this was built, what God gave us was a tabernacle, and he dwelt with us there. And we followed him around. Wherever he went, we went with him. And y'all's history is you reject every single servant God sends to you. And you did the same thing with Jesus. And now the straw that broke the camel's back. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him, which is a very mature response when you don't know what to say. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, blasphemy, we don't even want to hear it, and yelling at the top of their voices, these 70 men, like grown men, all rush at him, 
dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. First martyr in the history of the Christian church. You can see the parallels there between Jesus' death and Stephen's death. There's a pattern there. Some, there's debate on whether this was a legal execution or some kind of lynch mob. Ultimately, it doesn't matter at all. They thought he was blaspheming on some level, and so they stoned him. That was the penalty for that in the Old Testament. Interesting. To me, the most interesting part of that is the idea of Jesus standing. Every other time we see him in the New Testament, after his resurrection, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And we have this picture. Stephen says, I see him. It's twice. He's standing. You wonder, is he standing up? To receive Stephen, just like you do when someone comes to your house. Is that... Is that what's going on? He knows. Is he standing up? And that, I was thinking about that for us. And you're not, none of us are getting thrown in jail. We're definitely not getting thrown in jail by the religious police. We don't live there. There are people who live there. It's not us. We're not going to be persecuted by some Christian council or Jewish counselor. That doesn't happen for us. What are the, what are the connection points for us in this? There's two things I want you to think about. You may have something else. One. Don't limit what God wants to do through you. Over here we have Stephen. Take care of widows. Ten tables. Incredibly important work. These ladies starve if you're not doing your job, Stephen. Many of us, like, we can connect with that. That's fine. It's physical. It's tangible. It's service-oriented. It doesn't require a lot in terms of what we may say. We can get on board with that kind of work. At the same time, Stephen is working wonders and signs and spreading slash defending the faith in this Jewish synagogue. He does both of those things. He says yes to both. This over here makes many of us nervous. Things that we might call quote-unquote spiritual or supernatural, things that are verbal and evangelistic makes us all, many of us, very nervous. We're, give me a table. I will serve the heck out of that table. Don't ask me to say anything and don't ask me to pray for anybody or whatever those things are. We feel disqualified or unqualified. We don't know the Bible well enough or we're shy or it's too risky or we're not those kind of people or for whatever reason. We shrink what God can do through us. And I want to strongly encourage you, don't do that. Super important to take care of widows or they die in Stephen's case. Also super important. For him to say, if there is no Stephen, there is no us. He was the beginning of the bridge taking the gospel out of a strictly Jewish context so that the rest of us Gentiles could, could grab on to the faith without having to go to the temple in Jerusalem and become Jews. It's a huge deal. The universalizing of the message begins right there with the, with the not with one of the twelve, with one of the waiters, which is not insignificant at all. But for many of us, we disqualify ourselves. I'm not fill in the blank. I'm not Jeff and Sherry or Corey. I'm not missionaries. That's not what God has called me to do. That's the kind of work they do. Uh-uh. It's the kind of work they do, and it's the kind of work you do. There are good things in you. And there's a city and a world desperate for them. 
it's more blessed to give away the good things that God has given to you than to receive. If we can learn that secret and begin to live that truth, it changes everything. But for so many of us, don't hear this as condemnation, but for so many of us, we pull back and we are afraid to give away the good things that God has given to us because of lack of confidence or because of accusations from the enemy or because of some perceived sense of unworthiness. So we pull our boundary stones in and say, God, I'm, I'm good with these kinds of things. I'm not good with these kinds of things. Don't limit how he wants to work through you. It's not just for you. It's for them. He wants to do that. The same Holy Spirit who filled the 12 apostles is the same Holy Spirit who filled Stephen, is the same Holy Spirit who fills you. He's just the same. He does the same work. He works in the same way. And he uses people like us. It's not just people like the 12 apostles. It's people like us. That he uses. So when you think about Stephen, allow that to challenge you. Don't put limits on how the Lord wants to use you. Second, we've talked about this before, but let me just remind you. Stephen is squeezed. He's pressed. And what comes out of him? We read earlier he was introduced as a man full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And we see that coming out of him. In just those 52 verses, he quotes 10 different passages from the Old Testament. He knows the word. It's in him. He doesn't have a Bible in front of him. He doesn't have time to prep a defense. It looks like they arrest him. They pull him before the Sanhedrin who are out for blood, and they say, are these charges true? In the moment, he's responding. And it's not just Bible memory drill. Yes, he has these verses in him, but he's using them in some very, they're theologically profound ways. He's weaving together truth from the Old Testament to say, let me tell you, based on your book, this thing, Sadducees, y'all only believe in the first five books of the Bible, so I'm going to stick there. Genesis and Ethel, and that y'all have historically rejected his people, which is what's being played out right in front of you today. Imagine doing that as you're being grilled by 70 people who you know want your neck. That's what he's doing because it's in him. And so when he's pressed... What comes out of him is the word, and it's wisdom. It's not Again, it's not just memorized. Wisdom is knowledge applied, and he knows how to apply the truth of the Old Testament. And we see those things coming out, and we see the fruit of the Spirit, peace. He looks like an angel, self-control, love. Who forgives people when they're throwing rocks at you? Hurts. But we see those things. He's full of wisdom. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and when he's pressed, that's what comes out of him. Again, that's not going to be, nobody's stoning you. You're not going to be pressed in those ways in terms of persecution, but all of us are pressed. Just the daily ins and outs of life. You've seen this before. I've showed it to you. It's this stress scale. And so some of these events are positive and some are negative. The idea, this, is, this was created by some doctors to help people know if they're prone to stress-related illnesses. That's not why we're using it. I just want you to use it to say, if you've experienced multiple of these things over the last 24 months, what they would say, if you've got a grand total of 300 or more points over the last 24 months, you are prone to stress-related illness. If you have between 150 and 300 points, you're moderately prone to stress-related illness. And if you have less than 150, 
then you're not. I know it's hard to see. You can take a picture and blow it up and look at it later. What I want you to see is those are just normal, everyday, that's just life. Life produces stress. Life presses us. Life squeezes us. What comes out of you when you're pressed and when you're squeezed? Like Stephen, is it the word? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it something else? For most of it, it's not black and white for us. It's not either or. It's some mixture of the Spirit and our flesh. That's how it is for most of us. Y'all remember these old commercials, these old Gatorade commercials? You remember that? That's a good picture. What's in you comes out of you. It's not hard. It's just what comes out because it's, you've, you've already made those deposits. Again, I want you to hear that as condemnation. Don't hear that as criticism, as an opportunity. I remember there was this, um, I've never really been a cusser. I cussed for one year of my life when I was 12, and that was it. <laughs> You're past 12, so you can't cuss anymore. So I was, and that was it. And I became a Christian after the summer of my sixth grade year, actually at the camp that we'll be going to here in a couple of minutes. And for whatever reason, I just never did cuss again. I guess it wasn't, for whatever, it's not better or worse. I just didn't. That wasn't, in, there are plenty of areas that I struggled, but that wasn't one of them. And I remember I was in college and I was lifting weights and I had this 45 pound plate and it slipped out of my hand and landed on my toe. And it hurt like crazy. I thought, I've never fainted. I thought, I might pass out. This hurts so bad. And I didn't cuss. And I thought, all right, it's not in me. It's not in me. Some of you like your first letter cussers. Some of you are repeaters. Some of you like to, you have a, um, a, a limited vocabulary of cuss words that you, you don't use all of them, just a few of them. It doesn't matter to me, other than as, it's just, it's kind of an illustration. If it's in you, it comes out of you when you're shocked or when you're scared or when you're hurt. Those kinds of initial reactions. We don't have time to plan or prepare. I don't care if you cuss or don't. Just not on the microphone. But think about that as an illustration. Flesh, you don't have time to prepare, and you don't have time to kind of get your mind around your response. What is it when you get cut off in traffic, when you don't get enough sleep, when things don't go the way, you know, somebody gets sick and it's kind of thrown your day, when your boss drops drop something on your desk and you're about to walk out the door in those moments where you're pressed what comes out think about it it's too late in the moment if it's not in you then it's not coming out of you some of you are married maybe in some of your premarital counseling or some of your ongoing marriage growth you've heard this idea of the love bank it's kind of corny but it's a nice picture it's this idea that says you need to make deposits into your spouse's love bank ongoing because you are going to make withdrawals. It doesn't take long. You're going to be drawn on that account. You're going to say something stupid. You're going to forget. You're going to hurt the And if there's nothing there, then you're in the red, and that's when things get bad. Withdrawals are never great, but as long as you can cover it, then you're okay. Does that make sense? Same thing, same concept spiritually. Are you making regular deposits into your heart? Are you, is the word in you? I don't care if you memorize it. That can easily become box checking for people. It may be not for you, but it can be. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, do you know the truth? 
of who God is and how he works, is that in you? And when you are watching a debate between the people we have, lying liar, liar pantses, up there saying, <laughs> this is what can you, with the truth that's it, is that's what comes out of you, the truth that you can overlay one or the other or move. One of those things, can you do that? From the truth, does that come out of you? When you're hearing all of that noise out there, when you're squeezed, have you been making, have you been cultivating love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? So when you are cut off, when your boss does drop something on your desk, when there is a snarl in your schedule, when those, they're going to happen, it's not the devil, it's just life. When that stuff happens, have you been cultivating that fruit so that when you're pressed, that's what comes out of you? Not anger or judgment or self-righteousness or, or self-pity. You can be making those deposits now, and I would encourage you to do that. It's too late in the moment. You got it or you don't. But you can make deposits today and tomorrow and Tuesday. And over time, it's not instantaneous, but over time you'll realize, wow, my reactions are becoming more righteous my reactions are becoming more holy. I thought I was just an angry person. And you'll realize you're not just an angry person. As the Holy Spirit begins to grab more and more control of your heart and your emotions and your reactions. Let's pray. We're running out of time. I want to pray for two groups. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. If you're stressed, man, we want to pray for you. It can be good stress or bad stress. But we want to pray for you. If you would say, right now, I'm under it. And we also want to pray this idea, if you know you're living small, the idea of saying, God, I'm not going to limit you. If that makes you nervous, if it scares you, what's he going to ask me to do? If you know that's kind of the boat you're in, we want to pray for you about that too. And I'm going to just say a prayer over everybody else. God, I pray for the men and the women, for the students who are in this room. And I pray, one, that none of us, would artificially limit how you use us. We hear Bosnia and we hear Australia and we think, never me. It may never be us, but it may be. And it 100% is something. There's something that you're calling every one of us to. And we want to step into that. We don't want to idolize romanticize. God, we want the reality of what you've called us to. In Marietta, in Cobb County, in the world. So would you speak? Would the men and women and the students in this room hear you very clearly saying, you're mine. I've got you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I'm pleased with you. And I want to bring you to work with me. And it's going to be great. And no, we're not promised safety. Stephen died. Is there a better reward than seeing you stand up? And welcoming us. God, I pray every man and woman in this room, every student would hear you saying to them, well done. You were faithful. You did good with what I gave you. 
we want to move into a performance mode at all, but God, we want to be faithful with what you've given to us. We want to be quick to give that away to others. And God, I do want to pray for people who would say, I'm being squeezed right now. My health is terrible or my finances are terrible or or there are these great things, but there are just so many logistics, whatever it is, people who are squeezed. God, would you fill them up this morning? Would you make a deposit into them? The truth from your word, the fruit of your spirit. So as we go through life and are jostled and bumped and banged into what spills out onto other people are the good things that you've put into us, not our flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're on the ministry teams, we'd love you to come forward. If you want prayer, again, we'll pray with you about anything at all, but those two specifically, if you're being squeezed or if if you know you're being tempted to maybe pull out, pull in your boundaries a little bit. So you guys can stand, um, Bo will dismiss us, come forward as you will, and Bo will dismiss us after this song.